Hey there, it's Michael Costa from The Daily Show on Comedy Central. Ever wonder what happens behind the scenes or want to catch some extended interviews? Well, now you can. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition podcast for full episodes, extended content, and a whole lot more. The Daily Show, Ears Edition is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Roy Wood Jr. Happy Women's History Month. I want to take a look back at some of our favorite episodes that celebrate female trailblazers. In this episode, we chat about female rappers who made a name for themselves in a male-dominated industry, how our first ladies impacted our nation's policies, and we even chat about the depictions of female pleasure on screen and how it evolved over the years to be more sex positive. Ooh, freaky deaky. Have a listen. I hope you enjoy I hope I don't get in trouble for saying freaky deaky. It's too late already, said. In this first clip on the First Ladies episode, I'm joined by Daily Show producer Jeff Gusso and CNN contributor Kate Anderson Brower about some of the ways First Ladies have impacted policy in this country. Give them a clip. Kate, help us understand the role of the First Lady. You know, it's 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 unpaid. First and foremost, we want to talk about some pay inequity. Uh, it's an unelected role. There, there really doesn't seem to be a rule book on what you can and can't or should and shouldn't do. But yet everybody has an opinion on what a first lady should or shouldn't be doing. So what are some of the expectations of the role? Well, it's a very archaic, old-fashioned title, right? You know, Jackie Kennedy said that she never wanted to be called First Lady. It sounded like a saddle horse. She said it was like a demeaning name. Um, It's very arcane because people don't understand it. And even years of studying it myself, I found it to be completely dependent on the person who has the position. Um, one, one person wrote to Betty Ford, who was first lady in the 70s, and said, you're constitutionally required to be perfect. And I think that kind of sums it up. They are supposed to be mm. ideal wives and mothers, the symbol of what it is to be an American woman juggling everything. And each of them fails in their own way. And I think they they feel as though um, after a little bit of time in the position that they just have to make it their own and do what they want with it. Because as Rosalind Carter said, no matter what, you're going to be criticized. And, you know, there's a lot of sexism, obviously, and um, in the world still. And I think that there is a sense that each woman um, is held up to these very unfair expectations. And so they have to make the role their own. And there's nothing in the Constitution that describes what they have to do. So they can do as little, like Melania Trump, for instance, or as much, like Eleanor Roosevelt, or Hillary Clinton, or Michelle Obama, these women that really took the role incredibly seriously. So it just depends on each woman. Yeah, because, you know, Michelle Obama, you know, she it was the school lunch initiative, you know, healthier nutrition, you know, the Let's Move program. You know, you look at everything that Betty Ford was doing with regards to, you know, just being vocal about women's issues. We don't have to talk about Nancy Reagan and just say, no, we know the history of that. How do some of the expectations of the first lady play into some of the gender norms and gender roles that I believe a lot of women are trying to break out of or at least trying to change what the base level expectations are of a first lady. Because, you know, they're responsible for a lot of the domestic duties in the White House, not literally cleaning and cooking, but 
organizing the social events and oh you got to decorate the tree and we have to make sure everything is set for dinner like how much of those expectations are part of the role I mean, one of the funniest things that happened during the Trump administration was when Melania, you know, was caught talking to a friend um, on the phone and saying something about how she just didn't want to deal with the stupid Christmas decorations. And I think everyone was like aghast at that because that's what the job is. And it, it just looked bad, too. They say I'm, I'm complicit. I'm the same like him. I support him. I don't no. say enough. I don't do enough. No. Nope. Where, where I am. I put the, I'm working like a asthma, asthma, I know. The Christmas stuff that, you know, who gives a f about Christmas stuff and decoration, but I need to do it, right? But I mean, look at Michelle Obama. She was making, you know, almost $300,000 at the University of Chicago Medical Center in their communications office. She went to Harvard, Princeton. She's incredibly well-educated. And yet her role was in many ways to just take care of the daughters. And there's nothing wrong with that. The mother-in-chief role that Michelle Obama took up was really powerful, especially for, you know, a black woman. I thought that that was really important for her to make this point that she was going to focus on her daughters. And there was nothing wrong with that. I think that you have to be able to just accept women doing as much or as little as they want. Then you see Hillary Clinton, who had an office in the West Wing, and she always regretted having that office because she realized that she overstepped, that the American people were not ready for it. And it, and I think that's unfortunate, right, that we haven't moved beyond that. And I think it's going to take a first gentleman, if that's what we call him, to like be okay with a woman doing as much or as little as she as she wants. I mean, if Bill Clinton were first gentleman, I think that no one would be expecting him to be, you know, baking cookies. Arranging the Christmas decoration, and yeah. redesigning the White House lawn. That's why, Jeff, that's why I was like, in a weird way during the last election, I was kind of pulling for Cory Booker just because I wanted the chaos of an unmarried man in the White House. Like, who's going to do what? If like, Granted, he's in a relationship with Rosario Dawson at the right. time. But, you know, are you still a first lady if you're first <laughs> girlfriend? Like, I wanted chaos, dude. What was, like, the main inspiration for putting this piece together? Um, and just talk to us a little bit about the ideation of that uh, at The Daily Show. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was about November 2020. The election, I think, had just happened. And we were sort of, like, looking at, like, all the changes that were about to happen with Joe Biden and Dr. Jill Biden coming in. Uh, in January. And I think we were trying to like, you know, we just wanted to focus on like, what is this role? What is this handoff between Melania Trump to Jill Biden? And, you know, what is the history? What are the expectations? Four years of Donald Trump and Melania Trump had been so chaotic. And like, was what Melania Trump did normal? Was it not normal? What is expected of Jill Biden? So we wanted to honor these ladies. But we also wanted to like get the crux of like, you know, how the job can be good and how the job can be bad, you know, give it, you know, give people a full sense of it, you know, which is difficult in 10 minutes. But, you know, that was the big idea of what we were trying to get to. It's interesting because, you know, it's a role where, you know, traditionally they all have to champion some sort of social cause, you know, and, you know, it, and that's been the tradition of traditionally. You have to have something that you really give a lot of extra give a damn about. And you have to roll out a plan about that to the American people over the next four years. And hopefully with no scandals messing it up in the meantime. But I feel like the role has evolved over the years. What, what are some of the ways that first ladies um, just in the research that you've seen, Jeff, what are some of the ways that the first ladies have kind of made 
this role their own. And I would love to hear from you as well uh, on that, Kate. When we were developing the piece chronologically, when we hit like Eleanor Roosevelt, like that was a big one that like there was so much to unpack. And we felt like that was really like where it changed, where it was like more front, where you could be visibly like, uh, you know, pushing for these causes and, you know, advocating on beliefs. Each one made it their own. And so like the connecting line through them all was like, they each had their cause like that they would believe in. They were supporting their their husbands and the presidents, but they were also like advocating for like women's issues and social causes that like would help further, you know, generations. From the earliest days, America's first ladies were referred to as Lady Presidentress or Republican Queen. The term first lady didn't come into use really until Dolly Madison's time. The fourth first lady pioneered the practice of championing social causes. She helped orphan children and supported women's rights. And it's said that at Mrs. Madison's funeral, President Zachary Taylor eulogized her as the country's first lady, the first time that title was ever used. I was just thinking about what you were saying, Roy, earlier about if Cory Booker had been elected. And I think his mother or his sister or niece or someone would have stepped in to take over the role because there's just no way that they would let that go. Like somebody needs to fill in. We saw Thomas Jefferson's daughter. We need a daughter. mama. We need a yeah. woman. Get a woman in here. Yes, you need a woman. And I, I still don't know why. But we feel the need to have this position. And like James Buchanan was a, was a bachelor and his niece, Harriet Lane, you know, took over um, this wow. going back in the 19th century. But like the idea that we would elect a, an unmarried person as president, I think is such an interesting question because we attach so much like, you know, meaning to being married and having a family and like how that would make you responsible. And I, I just, I feel like we haven't moved far enough away from those really old fashioned ideas. You know, the first lady is arguably one of the most important advisors to the president. I don't believe that it was a coincidence that, you know, you know, Reagan ran a big deal on having a war on drugs and then Nancy had just say no. How much of a role or how much influence does the first lady have? Like in what ways have first ladies impacted policy in this country? I mean, a very recent example is Michelle Obama with her Let's Move campaign that you mentioned earlier about, you know, having healthy lunches and ketchup doesn't count as a vegetable in school lunches and all of that. Ooh, I mean, she was really yes. trying to continue make it like a very healthy um, you know, environment for kids who sometimes, you know, uh, hot lunch is like their only meal of the day for some kids in this country, which is just like terrible. And so she really wanted to make sure they had nutritious food. And that dovetailed with the Let's Move campaign, which was about exercise and with her husband's uh, child care nutrition bill that they were trying to get through Congress. And so she would make calls to, to senators and uh, members of Congress trying to push that bill through. And that's a real example of a first lady getting involved in policy. Hillary Clinton wanted Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court and let her husband know that she was the right pick. So there are actual real ways that they're getting involved. And, and they call it pillow talk, which I still think is kind of silly. But the idea that at night, this is the last person there, the president's <laughs> presumably yeah. going to be seeing. So they can influence policy. But like you mentioned Betty Ford, and I think a lot of people know about what she did um, 
to, to talk about drug and alcohol addiction, but that happened after she was in office. Like that, right. the, the Betty Ford Center was years later. And so I think they have this tremendous power for the rest of their lives if they choose to use it. So we all know that Nancy Reagan was one of the people that got, you know, her husband to fire Donald Reagan, who was then his chief of staff. And then this one doesn't necessarily compare the same because it was 100 years ago. But we also know that, you know, I think it was it. Um, was it Woodrow Wilson that had yeah. the stroke? Mm hmm. Yeah, and and Edith. Edith and Edith was running the country after her husband, like not in an official capacity, but unofficially, she you know Woodrow would whisper in her ear, "This is what you need to tell him to do," and then she would go password to the vice president. Yeah. Does that support system make the president stronger, or is it like like where's the line of hey, here's what you should do versus hey, let me do my job? I mean, that's such a good question. When you bring up Edith and Nancy, those are two first ladies. The reasons why they were so powerful is they decided who could see their husbands, right? Like Nancy Reagan decided who would be chief of staff. She decided even when they were putting the cabinet together, who should be in the cabinet. And then Edith Wilson was keeping people away from her husband when he was sick. So it's the idea of who's controlling the people who can get into the Oval Office or have the president's ear. So I think that um, that's where the power lies in in the position of first lady is, is being that person who can control people who have access to their husband. And I think a lot of people would say first ladies shouldn't have any control, right? Because they're not elected. I would argue that most first ladies that have kind of been doing the pillow talk has been for the better of the country, not necessarily for the detriment. We don't know if Melania ever slept in the same bed with Trump after maybe the first year. But in terms of understanding just how influential this role is, why do women have to live in the shadows and be unpaid in that regard? If I, if you have a stroke and I'm the middleman between you and the chief of staff when the bombs again, this is back in the 1900s. Prohibition, World War One was around the corner. Shouldn't I get a little bit of money for being a first lady? <laughs> it is ridiculous, and that's what um, Dr. Biden is trying to do. I think by having a job, by being paid for that job. She's teaching, of course, and she had taught her entire life. The only time she took a break was during the campaign. And I think that it's important that women be able to continue their jobs. And Laura Bush, it's, it's not a partisan thing either. Laura Bush said the same thing. She said, first ladies should be, you know, given the opportunity to pursue whatever career they had. I mean, you cannot expect Hillary Clinton to just sit idly by. And I think uh, I think that being paid for being first lady is different than being paid for continuing your job as a teacher, which mm -hmm. is outside, you know, the role. I think that's easier to convince people it's it's okay. Especially with like as much work, like, you know, there's still expectations of like stuff doing at the White House, but like, you know, Jill Biden's been traveling all over, you know, visiting, you know, her uh, tornado victims and things like that. So like, there's still just a lot of work as well that they are doing and still expected to do as well. And like to not get paid for that, but also have an office that like up with a staff that reports to them, like, why is the boss not paid? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> well, you're paid the prestige of the book deal after you leave office. That's it. You get paid. <laughs> Jeff, what, what didn't make it into the piece? Because that's the thing I'm always curious about. Just, all right, what what argument did y'all have when this piece was 13 minutes and you knew you had to chop it down to 10? Yeah, I mean, you know, 
every woman that's been a first lady has like, a, you know, there's documentaries about them. There's books about them. Like there's hundreds of, of sources on them and stories to tell. And like, it's very difficult to like narrow it down. And like right off the top, Dolly Madison was where we sort of started this piece. And like, you know, one of the stories that was interesting, but we just didn't have time for was like her saving like all these, you know, government documents and the Washington portrait when the British were storming the White House. And it was just like a fascinating story, but like we just didn't have the time to like explain that story. Eleanor Roosevelt, we, we spent one entire role on. And there was like two stories that like I thought were really interesting, but we just didn't have room for. One was that like, you know, she was very um, a big advocate for the anti-lynching legislation um, and the KKK put like a bounty on her. And then she also would hold women-only press conferences. A lot of newspapers that only had men reporters would have to either hire women reporters or, you know, get women to report on these stories. And so, like, it saved nice. women's jobs and, like, was a real force for, like, having women enter into journalism. And so, you know, you're condensing all this history into, like, you know, it's a 13-minute piece. And, like, the sound bites that we use are, like, a minute each, roughly. So, you know, trying to tell Eleanor Roosevelt's entire story in a minute is impossible. So we've seen what women have done in the White House. After the break, let's revisit a conversation that shows you what they've done in the studio. We're talking hip, hippity, hip, hip, hoppity, hippity, hippity, hoppity. After the break, beyond the scenes. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Politics isn't the only industry where women have made an important impact. Next, let's take a look at how female MCs help shape hip-hop. In this next clip, I chatted with Dulce Sloan, a Daily Show correspondent and Daily Show producer Chelsea Williamson, about how female rappers made a name for themselves in this male-dominated industry. Roll the clip, clip, ficky, clip. That's my rap. Just give him the clip. Now, Chelsea, I guess we could talk broader about Dulcane, but specifically about female MCs in hip hop. Where did you start that journey in assembling the pieces and looking at the history of it so that then the writers can come into that document and go, there's the joke, there's the joke. Then Dulce comes in and goes, that's a good point. That's a point I want to make. I want to make that point. Yeah, I feel like a lot of it, it well, this one specifically began through what happened with Megan The Stallion and Tory Lanez last year. Um, Bastard. The shooting. Yes, the shooting last July. Rapper Tory Lanez has been charged in connection with the shooting of fellow hip-hop star Megan The Stallion. Lanez is accused of shooting Megan The Stallion's feet back in July after she exited his SUV during a fight in the Hollywood Hills. Got shot in both feet. Yes, both feet. of her feet after they and went she to dances. a party together. Bastard. So we had been trying to figure out how are we going to put this into some sort of piece, like we need to do something because... She is also not the first, like, female rapper that something like that has happened to in this industry. Um, So it just felt like, I don't know, it just felt like there was, like, not a trend, but, like, there... It's a trend. Yeah, Yeah. it's, like, the sexism in the industry and how it affects, like, Black women that specifically occupy the rap space, which is so misogynistic, I think anybody would admit. Um, 
So we wanted to tackle that in some way, shape, or form. And it kind of ended up getting to the space of, well, let's talk about how women have influenced hip hop in general, because it's very much thought of as only men have done everything and that it's, it is still very male dominated. But as we showed, and as Dulce said, like black women literally founded and helped put together the first rap record. So it's like, we've been there since the beginning and, you know, we deserve our flowers and all the female rappers especially deserve their flowers because they never get them enough. Now, I saw the piece and I was disappointed to see that Charlie Baltimore had been um, ah, yeah. passed over. Now, there's only so much time. That's not disrespect to Madam Charlie Baltimore, one of my favorite rappers from the 90s. Thank you very much. Um, but Chelsea, Chelsea, then they'll say, what were some what were some pieces of the historical timeline? Like, what did you have to cut? Who were the rappers that you didn't get a chance to get in there? Because, you know, I'm a Southern guy, so I'm already biased to, like, the Mia X and the gangster mm-hmm. boos of the Thank world. Thank you so much Trinas. for saying Mia X. Yes. No, Thank we you were... so much for saying Mia X. We wanted to include Salt Pepper and Spinderella. I mean, like, they were some of the first ones. Like, Correct. It, we had so many <laughs> female MC rappers. Like, it you, was, like, you have to mention MC... them. You can't. Right, right. It was, it was like... It was literally like Sophie's choice. Um, like, it was like, who are we going to mention? Because we know we're going to offend somebody. And we actually weren't even able to, ideally, we had wanted to end like on where we are now and like highlight, you know, the Megan the Stallions, the Cardi B's, Nicki Minaj, who kind of ushered in this entire new era. Um, and we weren't really able to. So we didn't, we weren't able to get them in. We weren't able to get Trina, the baddest bitch. Um, you know, there were just a few that unfortunately we couldn't, you know, put in, but they mean so much to hip hop and like, that's not at all. So you had to focus on the foundation of the genre. Right. Of the gender in this genre. They'll say, were you okay with that? Once you all came to that decision, like, hey, we ain't got enough time to talk about present day hip hop. We talking from, you know, back in the day, we talking from cross color Carl Kanai. Right. Right (laughs) up. Coogee dresses. Yeah. Uh, Right up to TLC. And then after that, that's going to be the cutoff. Right. Well, I think it's like, I think us not being able to include more present day artists uh, was a bit of a disservice, but one, you got to cut stuff for time sometimes. But also I think when it comes to the music industry and it comes to hip hop, everything is very much what's happening now. Who's hot now? What's going on now? Whose album just dropped? Whose single just dropped? So I think we're very much aware of who is popping currently. So I think it being a bit of a history lesson was beneficial to people because there's a whole generation of folks that don't know that Queen Latifah was a rapper. There's a whole generation that don't know Ice Cube was a rapper. They argue me down about Will Smith, the youngest. He ain't never rapped. He won the first rap grip. What are you talking about? Queen Latifah burst onto the rap scene with the pro-woman message. Her song, Ladies First, showed off not only her lyrical prowess, but also uplifted women and name-checked other female MCs. She was shouting out more women than Mambo Number 5. Then in 1993, her song called UNITY called out men in hip hop for referring to women as bitches and hoes. Bitches and hoes. That's my bad, I got caught up. I can see why I shouldn't have said that. I'ma just Mm -hmm. leave. Let's talk for a second about your personal relationship 
with female MCs in hip hop, like as women, as black women's, as women's. <laughs> The representation. How, I, I'm, I'm joking, but no, but seriously, how empowering was it to see that, you know, on television? Or did you all always see that and feel like it was not enough? Chelsea, I'll start with you. I mean, I feel like the most impactful one for me actually was probably Nicki Minaj because of when she came out, which was like mm, the latter half of my high school years. And I want to say that was like the first rap album I'd bought for myself um, with Pink Friday. Ooh. I don't know if I really got like the magnitude of the moment when I, you know, bought it, but like I knew that like okay, this is this is going to be great. I love this girl. It was also cuz she was featured on Mariah's song, so and I'm a huge Mariah Carey fan. But other than that, I would say yeah. <laughs> and then side note for that, Mariah always featured a lot of female MCs on her remixes in the 90s and I loved those. So Yeah. Yeah, she did. Mariah had a nice little relationship with hip hop. In the nineties, and then she would go. Yeah, to the she had remixed one of her songs with. We had a song with Bone Thugs and Harmony. Like she did. Mariah it's so Carey. Good. Oh my god. She got out from under Tony Matola and was like, "I'm with all the black people now." Yeah. <laughs> Negroes get only. Me old please. dirty bastard. Let me. <laughs> yes. get, tell him to shimmy shimmy y'all all over this track and watch it go platinum. <laughs> Do say who were some more of the mainstreams that you that you kind of fell in love with coming up. I remember as a kid. Uh, seeing Queen Latifah perform Ladies First on TV. I don't know if it was like in Living Color or it was like on a late night show, but I remember seeing Queen Latifah perform on TV. I break into a lyrical freestyle. Grab the mic, check the crowd and see my... But it only seemed like there were mainly like female rappers from like the North. Because like you had like, you know, Queen Latifah, MC Light, um, and Salt and Pepper, yeah. and then like... When DeBrat came out, it was like, and DeBrat's not from the South either, but she was with Demain Japri. So by default, she's a Southern. Yeah, she's sh- Chicago. Or- yeah, that's what I thought. She's from mm-hmm. Chicago. So I think the only, the first time I really heard a female rapper that was from a sound that I was accustomed to was when DeBrat came out and she would be on songs with Jermaine Dupri. Because I grew up in the 90s, I remember seeing a lot of female rappers, and then there weren't any. Cause like MC Light on where she went, and then like you know Trina and Gangster Boo popped up, but it's kind of like when people talk about like okay there can only be like one big black comic at a time, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like it was Pryor, and then there was Eddie Murphy, and then you know now it's you know the Chappelle and Kevin Hart. So that's like and then they're just going you can only have one big female rapper at a time when there's a bunch of dudes talking nonsense all day and everyone's on board with it. I always felt like there was a feeling where there was proud to be a woman. There was like a proud to be woman era of lyricism within female hip hop. And then it was, I'm as bad as these dudes and I'll beat your ass era which lyricism, which is kind of the yeah. brat, which is kind of gangster boo, which is mm-hmm. a little bit Trina. And Trina was kind of that transition and little Kim. I'ma throw shade if I can't get paid. Blow you up to your girl like the army grenade. You can slide on my ice like the escapade. And then get yaya with the marmalade. Little Kim yeah. was kind of mm-hmm. overlap of I'll beat your ass, but also we can have sex if you would like to have sex. Which one would you prefer? And now I feel like female rappers have given so much space now finally to be all of the different things that a woman can be like i love and i'm not saying this because she's from montgomery alabama i really enjoy chica 
I really Chica. enjoyed. Is it Flo Millie from Flo Millie too? Is from Alabama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Flo yes. Millie's from Alabama. And there's this expressiveness of no, I'm going to talk about my inner thoughts and my wants, and I don't have to. If I choose to, I don't have to sexualize my lyrics. You have the freedom and the right to, but I can also be something else. And the industry goes, ah, yes, you come, come get a record deal too. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot more choice nowadays than there used to be. I do feel like, you know, that gap that we were just talking about that kind of happened after like Kim, Foxy and all of them came up and they changed the entire game. Like if we're being 100% honest, you know, Kim and Foxy made women owning their sexuality a thing. Um, It wasn't really talked about often from the woman's perspective in, in rap and hip hop, the way that they were talking about it before them. But kind of in consequence to that, that was then expected of all female rappers for at least a decade. Was it's just you need to be the next Kim Foxy, which means you need to be dripped in Gabbana, like they said. You need to be talking about sex as like all the time. You need to be selling sex. Like it was a very specific um, archetype that they wanted for so long. And record labels even have said it now that they said women rappers were just too expensive. And that's one of the reasons there was such a long gap is they were like, we don't want to get a Robin rapper because then we got to pay for hair. We got to pay for nails. We got to pay for your you know, looks. We got to pay for all this stuff. You've made it now so expensive to be a woman rapper. And then you're acting like wow. that's the reason to gatekeep. Are the women rappers held to a different standard? Because from what I can hear, the songs are just as hot. The flow is just as good. Yeah, no, I definitely think that women rappers are held to different standards. I think this is actually something Dulce and I I were talking about is just, it's kind of no matter what industry you're in. Um, Women are constantly underestimated and thought of as lower, and especially in rap, which is so male-dominated and misogynistic, like, these women are still getting asked whether they write their lyrics. I'm like, men don't even write their lyrics anymore, like... Why is that even still a question? Like, people are still like, oh, did Cardi B write XYZ? Da, 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 da. And it's like, does it matter? Like, you know, like, who cares? But then on top of that, like, they have to Drake do all the- Drake got writers. Okay. I mean, I'm like, that's why we had the whole feud between him and Meek Mill. Um, but, you know, like, it, even with all of that, these women are also supposed to be super fashionable all the time. They have to have all the hella choreography. Like, they are dancing. They are giving you, they're rapping- they're trying to dance like they're Janet Jackson <laughs> and at the same time, like still trying to like keep a bomb flow and like have great lyrics. Like, and the men just aren't, listen, Migos can walk around three times and they'll be out of breath. There's also just the fact that there's so many mediocre rapping men out here, like, but we can't have a female equivalent of that. Or whenever somebody is like not to whatever XYZ standard is, it's suddenly like, the whole hip hop world is gonna, you know, go and in, burst into flames because this girl can't rap on beat or whatever. And it's like, you know how many men can't? Most of them. I mean, I, <laughs> I think for me, the true measure of equality is allowing mediocrity. Truly. Ooh. Because Ooh. when I think of, because like only twenty percent of comics are women, right? Mm-hmm. So out of a hundred comics, twenty of them are women. And I had a male, com- I had a conversation with. Uh, ooh, mm, mm, I held the shade back in. I held the shade back in. Mm, I'm so proud Good of myself. Job. Good job. Uh, I'm trying to be blessed this year. And, but he was like, I don't know a lot of like women killers. I don't know I got a lot of women killers. And I'm just like, are you looking for male killers? Because he's like, well, you know, I'll see a lineup. And I'm like, out of 10 comics, only one of them is a woman. 
out of a lineup on a show, out of 10 comics, there's usually one of them as a woman. Out of these other nine comics that are all men, four of them probably are okay. But all every female comic is represented in this one girl, right? And she has to destroy. She has to fucking destroy. And so because when women succeed in a male-dominated industry... It's just like when you're, you know, any marginalized group that is trying to be successful in an industry that's either predominantly white or predominantly male, you're going to have a problem and you're going to be held at a different standard because it's like, well, you need to show us that you're as good as us. And I'm like, half of you motherfuckers are trash. So I only need to be as good as half of y'all, technically. Big thank you to Dulce and Chelsea for that wonderful breakdown of women in the rap game. After the break, we're going to talk with the homie Desi Lydic and a Daily Show writer about the way women and pleasure are often shown wrong on screen. It's beyond the scenes. Hey there, Jordan Klepper from The Daily Show and Comedy Central. Ever wonder what happens behind the scenes or want to catch some extended interviews? Well, now you can. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast for full episodes, extended content, and a whole lot more. The Daily Show Ears Edition is available wherever you get your podcasts. The music and entertainment industry's portrayal of women are really important. And in this next clip, I chatted with fellow correspondent Desi Lydic and Daily Show writer Kat Radley about something that doesn't get talked about often the depiction of female pleasure on screen. And I talked to them about how are y'all able to tackle this on the show? That's pretty freaky. Give them the clip. Roll that freaky clip. Let's get into the actual nuts and bolts of this, Desi. As a correspondent, when someone brings you this piece, what was your first thought? I was so excited because I, I had this reaction like, oh my God, why haven't we talked about this before? And... I think on a subconscious level, it's always bothered me that I feel like I haven't seen that many representations of female sexuality in like an honest, authentic, or even really funny way. Um, But it didn't hit me the depths of it until I read the script. We're always, you know, trying to figure out what topics we want to dive into. And we look for things that are that feel like they've been underreported or something we want to shine a spotlight on. And and they tend to be, you know, we we go deep with the information and we go through the history of something. And 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 our the trap is that it would be something that can feel a little dry, right? Well, this one immediately is like, oh, that's fun to talk about. That's like this this one was very wet. This was very wet. This was the opposite of dry. <laughs> Thank you, Kat. Yeah. You're not going to lure me in. Nope. Nice we'll, try, We'll get him. We'll no. get him halfway through. <laughs> but this was, um, I wrote it with uh, Lauren, another writer who is amazing. And the two of us have written a couple things for Desi. And it seems like it's just, I mean, writing for Desi is super fun. And we kind of knew like, all right, this can be like a, a touchy, difficult subject, and I mean, Desi totally nailed the performance, so I'm glad that she was as on board and excited about it as we were, because writing it was, it was fun to actually, like, like Desi was saying for Women's History Month, sometimes we do, like, all right, let's look at, you know, voting rights and the suffragette movement, which is important and great, but not as fun as talking about, you know, 
Barbarella or Meg Ryan's orgasm in When Harry Met Sally. Oh, oh God. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, 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 oh God. I'll have what she's having. We haven't really done a segment like this on the show before, so I feel like it was like a, a fun aspect of women's history that wasn't as like serious and heavy as, you know, having our rights taken away. But it also just the subject matter itself, it was something that I sort of like subconsciously knew in my brain that I wasn't saying a lot of this out there. But I I really it it wasn't it didn't hit me until I read everything in that discussion. Like, oh my God, yes, that is how women were represented that early on. I had no idea about the Hedy Lamar thing. The first known female orgasm on the silver screen was in the 1933 German film Ecstasy, when Hedy Lamar took the Bratwurst Express all the way to Pleasureburg. Turns out the world wasn't ready for this. Everyone denounced it, from Hitler to the Pope. And if you ask me, the Pope has no place weighing in on sex scenes. He's celibate. I mean, when we need your opinion on the best stain removers for white fabrics, then we'll call you. I didn't realize that she was the first woman to have an orgasm on screen. And then not only that, but like she was basically came up with the start of what is Wi-Fi now? So she was a genius. Like I had no idea about all of that until I read it. Yeah, but the, but they low-key sex shamed her the yeah. rest of her career for right. daring to be that open on camera. Do you all think that men being in control of the narrative of sex in the entertainment industry, I mean, less so now, but definitely still more so than women how much did that play into it when you look at over the decades and decades of just the way women have been portrayed to just you are the male, the man controls you. And it's never really connected to what a woman really wants in the bedroom or properly portraying what a woman wants in a bedroom. The Hedy Lamar thing went back to like the 1930s. So that's like kind of where this started, 1930s films up till now. And yeah, when you think about it, it was mostly and still is mostly men writing and directing and producing these movies. So they're the ones who are determining, you know, what a female orgasm should or shouldn't look like on screen. Cause I, cause it didn't make you wonder like, okay, well why is this? And you're like, oh yeah, cause men control everything for all of the beginning of time. Um, so I do think that has a lot to do with it. Just like who's writing these stories, who's telling these women and directing them, how to act on screen. Um, okay, so now, in this next take, <laughs> when you're gonna really erupt with pleasure, I want you to just scream and bang the headboard so that everyone can hear. All right, and <laughs> Meanwhile, it's like 10 seconds in and nothing has happened. And you're like, oh, that, is that all it? Okay, well, I guess that's how it works. It's just uh, that simple, huh? It's like almost like so, sound like you're getting murdered, but not quite. There's like a <laughs> fine line between the two. Yeah. Feed the ego of the man so he knows he's killing it, proverbially. Yeah. 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 So when we do race stories on the show, the question is always who's the intended audience, right? Because black people, to a degree, kind of already know some of the stuff we're talking about. So in a way, you're having to present new information to half of the audience that already knows this topic while also presenting it. Like with CP time, 
it's stuff that black people may or may not have already known, but here's a couple of jokes and we go a little deeper on the issue. And if you are not black, then this is a whole wealth of new information because I'll be honest, as a man, this is something I've never paid attention to. So who was the, when you think about the intended audience, was it to serve a dual purpose or was it to educate meatheads like myself? (laughs) I mean, I think it's always like, in in my opinion, it's always about kind of starting a conversation across the board, right? And I, the feeling that I felt when I read it for the first time was what I would hope that other women felt when they saw it and that, that they felt heard and seen like, oh, I've been feeling this way too. I've been missing this in TV and film and we do have some more work to do. And then also to maybe perhaps educate a few viewers who maybe did not know some of this or thought about it in that way. Um, And yeah, start a conversation about it. I remember growing up watching a lot of movies and stuff. And this is how, like watching this segment, it I pew, 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 in my brain and I started thinking back there's a scene in Waiting to Exhale oh shit oh this is good yeah oh, yeah it's oh, good yeah. ooh it's good ooh yeah ooh oh. he 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 can we say or I'll say orgasm yeah. this is beyond the scenes Safe and we're a very tasteful oh, yeah. show yes so he busts yeah. way before <laughs> the woman did does he think he just did something here Shit, I could have had a V8. Oh, I could have had a V8 was the line. It's a legendary, <laughs> it's a legendary a line. line. But women not getting an orgasm is almost seen as, ha ha, you didn't get any pleasure. Growing up, what was you all's personal experience in seeing female pleasure depicted on screen? Can I ask that? Let me ask yeah. that in a more HR way. Uh, <laughs> as you all were matriculating as young women. Uh, <laughs> No, how much did no, it's, seeing it's menstruating, women Roy, it's menstruating. called menstruating. <laughs> Once a month. As you menstruate it to adulthood. <laughs> yeah. But you know, what was your what was your experience seeing the way sex was depicted on screen? I think like you said too that it's funny that it was so often used as a punchline and I feel like that's kind of something that became ingrained without me realizing because it is, you know, it's either funny that she doesn't get pleasure or like two of the movies we do is like a Katherine Heigl scene and a Jennifer Aniston scene from Bruce Almighty where like their pleasure is like so over the top and um, exaggerated that it's like, it's the comedy, it's the butt of the joke. In the years that followed, female pleasure became more and more common on screen, but they were still often treated as punchlines, like Jennifer Aniston getting unexpected magic climaxes in Bruce Almighty, or Katherine Heigl accidentally orgasming at dinner when a little boy grabbed her remote-controlled vibrating underwear. Okay, there is so much wrong with this. It's non-consensual, it's a kid doing it, and it perpetuates the dangerous myth that vibrating underwear gives you anything but a five-alarm electrical burn. I was like, oh, okay, like, it's, it's, the way we do it is funny, or like, we're kind of used as a punchline as opposed to like, taken seriously, and I don't really know how that affected me, because I feel like we were just kind of getting messages like that from all over, so I'm kind of like, all right, well, this is the way it is, until you kind of learn that it is different. I'm still waiting to learn. (laughs) That scene in particular, I have so many mixed feelings about. I feel like that, because as 
as like an actor doing comedy, you when you get a scene as a woman, like you want to have the joke. You want to get to do like the big performative joke in this set piece. And so, and men get to joke about their orgasms all the time. Like it's all over the place, eh, literally. And um, how many are we at now? Three, four, three. <laughs> still early. But, but like there were so many problems in that scene itself. Like Kat said, we were kind of like punching at the wrong thing. The punchline was aimed, it seemed in the wrong direction. And also um, just like there was really no consent. It was kind of against their will. It was happening to them and they weren't participating in it, which felt kind of weird. And I think those movies were, when Laura and I were writing it, we were like, wait, what year was this? I want to say it was like 2009. Like it was 10 to 15 years ago when like consent was not like a term people were thinking about or throwing around in probably like movie sets at all. And I'm like, oh yeah, like you are like giving Katherine Heigl this orgasm in a restaurant and it's funny and I'm just like, ooh, man, that they didn't even have the C word anywhere in their brain like at this point in time. So I was like, I was like, there's so, there's so much wrong with this. And it was a kid, right? Like it was it like was a kid, eight year old kid toying yeah. with it. You're like, no, stop. Yeah, there's a lot of problematic old school sex scenes that you can go back and watch now and be like, yeah, I can I can remember I just recently rediscovered the movie Young Frankenstein, which I is like a classic Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder and so many funny performances in that movie. Terry Garr and Madeline Kahn are comedic geniuses. And I remember seeing that scene of Madeline Kahn with the monster when he comes in to like take her and he drops his pants and then suddenly she's like very into it and they have this whole sex scene oh oh, you can't be serious i'm a i oh my god woof I'm, I'm, I'm engaged, and, and once he took, but, but I didn't, it was never a time. All the, uh, oh my, uh, 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 mystery of life, at last I found you. It is like a tour de force in her comedic performance. It's hilarious. She should have won all the awards for this scene. And then it cuts to them sitting there side by side and they're smoking a cigarette. But in watching it in recent years, you go back and you're like, wait, he took her against her will. Wait, there was no, he was kidnapping her. It was so problematic on so many levels. <laughs> the, is the implication that so Frankenstein has a big dick, like that's what yeah. the implication was? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess that would make sense. If you're able to like piece together a human, you're like, I guess I'll give him the Going biggest. Going all out biggest dead dick I can find. If young boys get weird science, we can at least have Frankenstein. Like, give us that. <laughs> yeah. That's all the time we have for today, but hopefully by now we've taken you beyond the scenes. See you next week. Listen to The Daily Show, Beyond the Scenes, on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We don't give a damn, just listen. 
John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.